Okay, demons. We started last week. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and continually work evil in the world. And they exist in the world today. The origin of demons, sometime between Genesis 1.31, when God finished his work of creation, he saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. Between that point and the point in Genesis 3, where the serpent came to Eve to tempt her, to get her to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sometime between there, there was a rebellion in the angelic world, only hinted at in the Bible, just talked about in very few verses. But something happened where some angels rebelled against God, tried to make themselves like God, equal to him, and uh, they were punished. Now, we don't know how long that was between the time that God cr finished his creation, Genesis 3.1 and chapter 3. We don't know how many years it was because it just doesn't tell us in the Bible. But there was some period of time and there was a time of rebellion. The language of ascending to heaven and setting his throne on high implies uh, rebellion in the, in the demonic, in the angelic world. And Isaiah uh, 14, 12 to 15 talks about that. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? In verse 14, he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And just a sidelight here. Last Sunday, and I didn't put this back in yet, but last Sunday, or Saturday night Sunday, I was getting ready for this, and I was looking it over, and I thought, you know, I should have put Ezekiel 28 in there, but I didn't. And after class, Sandy came up to me, and she said, hey, what about Ezekiel 28? I thought that was pretty good. Um, but uh, it, there's a question about whether Ezekiel 28 also is a uh, description of this fall of Satan, talked of in terms of a human king, or whether it's just a description of a human king, but that's another possible verse. Satan is the head of the demons. Satan is the word in Hebrew that means adversary. Adversary, one who is an opponent, and then in the Greek translation, it's diabolos, slanderer, uh, which comes into English as our word devil, and so Satan opposes God's work. He slanders and lies and speaks evil against us. Uh, other names for Satan, the devil, uh, a number of times in the New Testament, that's that Greek word diabolos, or the serpent sometimes, or Beelzebul, uh, lord of flies for some reason, sometimes called that. Um, and the ruler of this world, that is the world system in opposition to God. This is all review from last week. And the prince of the power of the air, again, uh, a demonic influence in the invisible world. Now, the activity of Satan and demons, this is again still review on your outline from last week. <coughs> Satan <coughs> was the originator of sin, <coughs> the one who originally rebelled against God and then tempted Eve to sin. Uh, demons oppose and try to destroy every work of God. And so the first murder in the Bible, Cain killing Abel. Uh, John looks back on that and says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. I think that means that much of the murder that goes on in the world has a demonic influence in it. Uh, demons stirring up people to hate others and attempt to murder or kill them. It's, it's sin in people's own hearts, yes, but I think there's another component, a component of spiritual evil that makes people irrational and lash out and try to, <clears throat> try to destroy human beings created in the image of God. And Jesse, I'm thinking you're facing a lot of that, uh, a lot of evil, a lot of just outright evil of people just trying to take lives for no reason, just senseless. They're in Iraq, and uh, thankful for your work trying to defend the people there, and us. Um, uh, 
Or Psalm 106.37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. Um, <clears throat> people led astray from God into this false religion, Baal worship in the Old Testament, and then being persuaded to take their little babies and, and burn them to death in sacrificial altars and fires. Now that's just, that's just it's a horrible culmination of what Satan wants to do to every one of us. Every human being created in the image of God. He wants to murder and destroy. If he can't murder, he wants to just hinder and afflict and cripple and just disable in any way he can to harm people's lives. So the influence of Satan in people's lives is a destructive one. <clears throat> Yet, lest we despair, we have to remember that demons are limited by God's control and have limited power. We saw that in Job and we saw that other places. Then, just looking over the whole history of the Bible, still a review from last week, we saw that there were different stages of demonic activity in uh, the history of redemption. And by history of redemption, I mean the history of the whole Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was uh, sacrificing to demons in foreign religion. In the New Testament, we come over to the New Testament. Well, wait a minute. I'm still on the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was no clear instance of people getting freed from this influence of demons, no clear instance of casting out of demons in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, yet there was destructive practices. And so I mentioned sacrificing sons and daughters to demons. That's murder. Also, uh, 1 Kings 18.28, when there's this context, contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Horeb, and uh, they're, they're in their worship kind of trying to call on their God. What do they do? They cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Well, if you see people doing that in a worship service, purportedly worship some God, you, you know that's not from the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, who is the creator and sustainer of life. That's, that's, a, that's a religion being motivated by a demonic activity. <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen <clears throat> some, um, if you've seen some of these um, worship practices in, oh, in the Far East, for instance, where you get people in Hindu worship services and they're putting swords or spears through, their, through different parts of their body and they've got their cheeks stretched out into distorted ways and just all sorts of physically harmful activities. Well, you look at that and you can say, it takes me about one second to look at that picture and say, that's not from God. But people are being led by an irrational, evil influence uh, to destroy, at least in part, destroy themselves and destroy their bodies. Um, <clears throat> or uh, Deuteronomy 23:17, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You had it in the Old Testament, you had it in Greek religions around the time of the New Testament, where there was, in these temples, there was what they called, quote, sacred prostitution. Well, the truth is it was demonically inspired prostitution. People being led to think that sexual immorality could bring them closer to God and was part of their worship service. You think that is all long ago and far away. Well, I don't know if you read the Da Vinci Code, but kind of the the the, the, the religious or moral point of the Da Vinci Code was that sexual activity outside of marriage can bring you closer to God. And you wonder why it was popular in a world that is looking for some excuse 
for sexual immorality. So uh, again, I look at that and I say, yeah, I think I know where that idea is coming from. There's demonic influence that's leading people to all sorts of self-destructive behavior, all sorts of immoral behavior in rebellion against God and deceiving them so they think they're actually being religious. They're actually serving God by doing this, but it's, but it's false. <clears throat> Um, during the ministry of Jesus. So Old Testament, there was demonic activity, led people to destructive practices, no casting out of demons that we could see. A little bit with David playing the liar and the evil spirit departed from Saul, but it was very minor in uh, effect. But then during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' power over demons was a distinguishing mark on his ministry to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth in a new and powerful way. So Matthew 12, 28 to 29 <clears throat> Jesus comes and he's casting out demons from people. And they're amazed. And he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. <clears throat> so by the power of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Jesus was casting out demons. And he said, this is a sign, number one, that the Holy Spirit is giving him power to do this, and number two, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is God's influence, God's reign, spreading slowly, silently, quietly throughout the world, changing people's lives. To make their lives, and their families, and their homes, and their businesses, and their societies more pleasing to God, more lived according to the plan that God has for them. That's what happens when the kingdom of God spreads. When the kingdom of God is spreading to influence your life, slowly, gradually, a little bit at a time, you say, wow, this is more like what life is supposed to be. Uh, my marriage is better. My, my children are, are doing better. They're, 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 they're living. Or, or, um, or in other ways, I'm, I'm following patterns of life that are, that are right, and I know they're right. The kingdom of God is spreading. And so Jesus says that one aspect of the spreading of the kingdom of God is that these demons that were oppressing people, they're, they're cast out. They're relieved from that. <clears throat> and so Mark 1.27, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, there's, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's some stories about people trying to get rid of demons and reading these long paragraph after paragraph of trying to get demons to leave and Maybe because there was, there was a remnant of faithful people in Israel. Maybe God gave them some limited influence or success in that regard. But it's very new what Jesus says. What Jesus comes and says, I command you, come out of that. Come out of her, come out of him, and the demon is gone. And so people are amazed that there's new power here that Jesus brings. During the New Covenant Age, authority over demonic spirits is then not just given to Jesus, but given from him to the 12 disciples and then to the 70, and then to Christians generally. So, Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. That's Jesus' command to the 12 when he sends them out preaching, two by two, cast out demons. And then he sends out the 70 or the 72. It's a little questionable whether 70 or 72. But uh, Luke 10, 17 to 18, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What happened was when Jesus came 
And I think in the temptation in the wilderness, there was a decisive crippling of Satan's power over human beings and an increase in the power that Jesus' disciples had to say to those demons, be gone, and they obeyed and they left. And so um, it's not just the 12 or the 70 or the 72 other disciples. Then what happens, we see in Acts 8, Philip goes down to a city of Samaria. Philip is not an apostle. Philip was one of the early deacons, but then he's preaching in the city of Samaria. And when they hear the message of Jesus, it says in Acts 8, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So it looks like there's a pattern of this authority to command these evil spirits to leave that's given to disciple to Christians generally. And 1 Peter 5, Peter says, be sober-minded. This is to all Christians in hundreds of churches in Asia Minor, Peter is writing. And he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So there's a, there's a command to stand against him, to resist him somehow, and to be firm in your faith. That is faith in the Lord, that his power is greater. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So as the kingdom of God advances, as the church increases its influence throughout the world, we should see the works of the devil, the destructive, harmful works of the devil diminishing and pulling back in their influence over the world. Now, okay, we did Old Testament, then we did New Testament, ministry of Jesus and the early Christians. And now I want to skip forward in history to a time after Jesus returns to the earth, a time called the millennium, millennium, a Latin word meaning 1,000 years, and I, I believe that the Bible teaches there's going to be a future period of a thousand years when Jesus will reign as king over the whole earth. He'll reign in righteousness and justice and peace. There'll still be believers and unbelievers on the earth, however, but there won't be demonic influence anymore. So, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So... It looks to me like Satan and also Satan representing and accompanied by the rest of the demonic forces that he's in charge of on the earth. It looks to me like their influence is completely removed from the earth for a thousand years, sometime in the future. Bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him. That looks like no more influence. Shut. Gone. Now, out of fairness, I have to say there are others in the Christian world who believe the Bible who don't hold to this pre-millennial view that I do and that Scottsdale Bible Church generally would hold to. And they're called amillennialists, and they think this verse applies today to this current age where Satan's influence is restricted. And it's, just, it's a question of interpretation. But 
but you're supposed to believe the view that I just told you earlier. <laughs> it's, it's about the future, so it's, it's hard to decide. Um, but I think there's a time coming. And then, so what's going to happen during this millennium? Well, no more demonic influence in the world. I think all of a sudden the world is going to be a much, much better place to live in. All that evil, it's all the false religion inspired by Satan and all that. It's not. So Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years before Satan comes out of his pit and he deceives the nations again and leads them up to battle. But he said, wait a minute, if Satan's gone, well then the world's perfect, right? There's no more evil in the world, right? Or could there still be some evil in the world? Where could it come from? From man. From man, yeah. How about our own hearts? Oh. And you've got believers and unbelievers on the earth during the millennium. Could there be sin in human hearts? Ah, yes. So there is, even though Jesus is reigning in righteousness and justice, yet there's evil uh, still from people's sin in their hearts. So not all evil in the world is from Satan and demons. In fact, we have some responsibility for it ourselves. Okay, so that's during the millennium. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will deceive the nations and gather them for battle, and that's on into the future. Then there's a final battle and final judgment, then new heavens and new earth. All right, at the final judgment, then Satan will be decisively and finally defeated. And then at the end of that passage, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever, no more influence on God's people or on the earth ever again for all eternity. Now, what about our relationship to demons? That's point D on the outline. The question is, we read this in the Bible. There are demons working in people's lives in the Old Testament, unbelievers, false religion. There are demons in people's lives in the New Testament. But are demons active in the world today? Here, again, you can look around and say, I don't see any demons. No demons. All right, must not be any demons. But, <laughs> but the question is, are we going to believe what the Bible says about the unseen world, the spiritual realm that we can't see? And I think if we're going to believe that Scripture gives us a true account of the world as it really is, then we have to take seriously the Bible's portrayal of intense demonic involvement in human society. And see, I... I think if we, we're not in the Old Testament period anymore because there's a different way of God's working then with just the Jewish people rather than all nations and, and the church. But now, and we're not at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry now, but we are at the same time as the book of Acts. We're at the time in the history of the world when the Holy Spirit has come and the church is growing throughout the world and we're in the same period of God's work in history. Um, in, in what we call the New Covenant Age. And so now we have to say regarding that age, not all evil and sin is from Satan and demons, but some is. And note, well, first, I've got to say, the main emphasis, when the Bible teaches Christians, the main emphasis is on, with, with regard to being obedient to God is just the Bible says, stop sinning and obey. It, it's, that's the primary emphasis. So let me get that straight first. Uh, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, for instance, he doesn't say, I hear there are divisions among you, cast out a spirit of divisiveness, and you'll be fine. 
doesn't say that. He says, I appeal to you that there be no divisions among you, but you would be the same mind and the same judgment. Or I, I didn't put the whole passage up here, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, these Christians were hauling each other into court, and, and Paul, Paul says, you know, can't you settle the disputes among yourselves? Isn't there someone among you wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood? He doesn't say, cast out an evil spirit of litigation. He just says, straighten out your differences among yourselves. So he's addressing the specific area of sin. Or uh, when he uh, says they're being disruptive and uh, going ahead and being selfish at the Lord's Supper and some eating a lot and some not having anything to eat, he, sa he doesn't say cast out the spirit of selfishness or gluttony. He just says, wait for one another and, uh, and uh, uh, tells them to be orderly. So uh, again and again, um, uh, oh, um, oh, yeah, there's sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5.15. Paul doesn't say, cast out a demon of incest. He just says, uh, exercise church discipline, and the person who's doing this should be removed from the body. So are you getting the point? Is that, is that clear? There's a lot in the New Testament about directions to how we should live or what we shouldn't do, and that's the emphasis, on our own heart, on our own behavior. But sometimes... Sometimes Jesus or Paul would cast out a demonic spirit that was causing significant, inf uh, significant um, hindrance to proclaiming the gospel. Uh, even though that's not the most common pattern of ministry presented, the emphasis was on preaching the gospel, but sometimes there was casting out a demon. So um, Jesus is out in, uh, ministering, and uh, Mark 5, 7 to 8 uh, suddenly there's a man there and uh, in front of Jesus and crying out with a loud voice from the midst of the audience. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So uh, there Jesus cast out a demon. And uh, Acts 16, 18, Paul was in Philippi and he was preaching the gospel. And there was this soothsaying girl kind of what we'd say, maybe a fortune-telling fortune girl. Fortune -telling girl. She was a slave girl, and, and, they, and her masters, her owners, were making a lot of money by her. And I suppose these demons were giving her some information about people, and they were amazed and things like that. But she started following Paul around, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Nothing false in that, but I suppose her attitude was, was revealing kind of a disruptiveness. And also, Paul didn't want to be identified with her. So finally it says... Paul says, he, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So sometimes they encounter a demon that is, um, that is interrupting or disrupting the ministry, and they just command it to come out, and it comes out. But generally, the emphasis is on just preaching the gospel. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom. Now, the reason I'm doing this emphasis, this, uh, I'm just pausing on this a little bit, is that out in the evangelical world, in some of the literature and some of the teaching, starting about 15 years ago or so, there was an emphasis on something called strategic level spiritual warfare. And it came especially out of some mission activity in Latin America and then spread into the United States. Maybe you've never heard of this, but some of you probably have. And the idea was this. If you're going to do evangelism in a new city, uh, say Buenos Aires, 
then what you have to do is you have to go into that city and you command the territorial spirit ruling over Buenos Aires to show himself to you, and then you ask him what are the names of the other spirits, and then whether you find out it's spirit of prostitution or gambling or whatever, then you cast out those evil spirits, then you can go to your evangelism in the city. So it's strategic level spiritual warfare. Well, I read that and I thought, hmm, I wonder about that. And of course, it's accompanied by testimonies of, you know, that we did this and it worked and this whole city came to Christ or something like that. But I am not comfortable with it. And the reason I am not is that it seems contrary to this pattern in the New Testament of people just go preaching the gospel. And if there's a demonic problem, they deal with it, but they don't go try to deal with the demonic problem first. They're dealing with the human being. So here are my objections. Actually, um, there are four of them. Um, the New Testament doesn't show anybody doing any of this. So I say, where do you see this in the New Testament? Well, well, we don't, but it works. Now, that's a clue that there's something to be suspicious about. And so the New Testament doesn't show anybody summoning a, quote, territorial spirit or demanding evidence from this spirit about other demons in the area. That's the theory or believing or teaching information derived from demons. Oh, the demon told me that these other demons are what I have to deal with. Hmm. Did you ever hear about consider the source? <laughs> See, if, if Satan is a liar and the father of lies, people say, oh, the demon, I commanded it, it had to tell me this information. I just wonder if you aren't being led down a rabbit trail. They'll just get you into all sorts of detours and, and uh, all sorts of uh, uh, just kind of wasted time and maybe involvement with a demonic activity far more than you should be. And certainly it doesn't teach that a territorial spirit over an area has to be defeated before there can be effective gospel proclamation in the area. I just worked through the book of Acts in some detail. What does Paul do? He goes into a city, he finds a synagogue, he starts opening the word and preaching. They drive him out of the synagogue, he goes next door, and he keeps on preaching. He preaches to the Jews, the Gentiles, he preaches the word. If there's a demonic problem, he deals with it, but it isn't the focus. So I just mention that, and that I have some serious objections to this idea about territorial spirits and strategic level spiritual warfare. And it may sound kind of attractive and kind of, oh, here's some secret information that we don't know about. And I say, I think we could just leave that to one side. I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not persuaded about that. I'll just pause there. You anybody want to ask about that? Yeah, uh, Beth. In support of that, I'd like to say that we have to be real careful about getting excited about this power yeah. that God's given us. He's given it to us only, as you said, in his name. Yeah. And we have to remember, sometimes he uses the demon to grow somebody or to grow other people around this person, like Job. He oh. allowed Satan to work in Job's life. And now, how many people have reaped benefits from reading the story of Job? Mm -hmm. Because nobody, it was nobody's place to go in there and cast Satan out of Job's life. God was using it. Okay. Um, yeah, that, yeah, Beth, I, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which I want to say, yes, I see God use that for evil, but I do think the New Testament pattern is if you can get rid of them, get rid of them. 
the demons. But I just don't, I just don't want people to focus on this new kind of teaching. That's, that's all. So, but, but, um, but yes, I know when there's, when there's difficulty that comes to our life from demons or illness or discouragement or whatever, sin, that we learn from that, but, but we shouldn't seek it or be content with it. Okay, so we're on the same page. Good, good, okay. Um, however, uh, now, but I don't, I don't, I want to go to the other extreme and say, hey, we never have to deal with this stuff. Because uh, God himself may reveal the nature of certain demonic opposition which Christians would then pray and battle against. So, I mean, you, God may show you that there's some demonic activity that's affecting an area that you want to minister to. And, and uh, Paul says that some people have an ability to distinguish between spirits in 1 Corinthians 12.10. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.3-6, especially verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So I do want to say this is real. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It seems like there's, an op- there's a conflict there, a wrestling that happens. Okay, we'll come back to those. But, I mean, this is, now this is Christians, right? Paul is saying in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It isn't the human beings that his main problem was with. And, and this is, you know, Paul in his missionary journeys, he faced hostile opposition, people stoning him, people uh, trying to put him to death, uh, people persecuting him all over. But he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And I think these in this context, these words, rulers, authorities, powers in the darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he, he's, he's perceiving the reality behind all the conflict that he is facing. And so there is a reality to that. Um, And so now I'm going to back up and repeat this again. Though the New Testament clearly recognizes the influence of demonic activity in the world, its primary focus, its primary focus regarding evangelism and Christian growth is on the choices and actions taken by people themselves. See, I think what happens when we make choices to walk in obedience to the Lord, to trust the Lord, that gives us protection in large measure against demonic activity because um, because I, I think by contrast patterns of sin give a foothold give an opening to demonic activity and patterns of obedience tend to give protection so Paul says walk by the spirit you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh and so don't give in to the desires of the flesh the sinful desires um, the works of the flesh are evident and see don't give in to sexual immorality impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and that would have to do with probably fortune-telling and palm-reading, and that that word uh, in in Greek would probably, uh, that kind of thing, and also probably hallucinogenic drugs would be involved in that kind of practice in the ancient world. Well, those things would open the door. Uh, Enmity, just cherishing hatred or, or anger within you, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, he calls those works of the flesh, but I see. I, I think that when people engage in repeated patterns of conduct like that, then they're opening themselves to demonic influence as well. I'll explain more why in just a minute. 
But the fruit of the Spirit, by contrast, we give ourselves and devote ourselves to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things, I think, provide a measure of obedience and then a measure of protection. And that's the emphasis of the New Testament. Still, the New Testament authors were definitely aware of the presence of demonic influence in the world and in the lives of Christians. So, um, Paul says about some opponents to the gospel and to the truth and to true doctrine, uh, Paul talks about correcting his opponents with gentleness, the Lord's servant. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the opponents to the preaching of the word, the opponents to the preaching of the ministry of the word, uh, they'll be captured by, by Satan to do his will. Oh, we were living in England, I remember a number of years ago, um, right during the middle of the sermon, or two or three Sundays, there was this uh, college-age young man that would stand up and just interrupt, and he wouldn't be silent, just interrupting our pastor when he was preaching. And we had to take church discipline measures against him, but see, I, I think he'd been captured by the enemy to do his will, just very dis- disruptive activity. Sandy? Um, just to lend lend scriptural support to what you're saying, um, in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, I have my little yep. Bible yep. morning. It's a new King James, but it reads, Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, and then that well-known verse in 27, nor give place to the devil. Okay. Is that the Greek word for place is topos, from which we get topography. Word picture is. Um, I'm going to repeat this just a second because I know it's hard to hear. Our, through our behaviors, through our choices, yeah. we in some way give, can give the devil essentially a chunk of geography yep. in, in our ah. inner person. In Good. Way. Ephesians 4 26 and 27, Sandy is saying, and I agree with this, Sandy, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, you're saying place to the devil in some translations, but uh, that giving a foothold, kind of an opportunity. By sinful patterns, we give um, opportunity for Satan to enter in and gain control. I think that's true, that they go hand in hand. Right. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, So, um, and and 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Oh, my goodness, that's a strong statement. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think what he's saying is that some measure, the whole unbelieving world, the whole world uh, that's in opposition to the Lord, is not serving God. Therefore, in stronger or lesser ways, stronger or weaker ways, there's some way in which they're serving in the power of the evil one and trapped by him in different areas of wrongful behavior or idolatry, serving other kinds of things in place of God. Uh, John 8:44, Jesus, in, in these hostile opponents, again, he's saying, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. So what's going to come out of people that are under strong demonic influence, it'll be harmful, destructive, murderous kind of activity, or it'll be lying and often both maybe compulsive lying, just uh, not being able to even see clearly what is true. Uh, 1 John 3.8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
Um, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the emphasis on the New Testament, I'm going to say this for the third time, is not on the influence of demons, but on the sin that remains in a believer's life. Yet sinning, even from Christians, does give a foothold for some kind of demonic influence in our lives. So, good, same. Well, it's fine. We're thinking along the same lines. Um, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I think Paul is saying if you give in to these horrible outlash, horrible uh, outbursts of, of, of anger, that you're just opening yourself up for a demonic influence that will probably enter in and intensify uh, the anger. And, um, and uh, it can be very severe, and of course, it result ultimately in violence, which is against other people, which will be destructive and harmful. Ephesians 6.14 would give support to this too. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Um, I, just, I just looked up this week, the Greek word for breastplate there, and it's thorax, which means in physiology, it's this, in, this, in the, the upper part of your body here. And the breastplate is that part of the armor that goes over to cover uh, you from um, the enemy's arrows or you know, sword or whatever. Paul says righteousness is like that for a believer. But if you've got this pattern of unrepressed bad temper and anger, and every time somebody cuts you off in traffic, out comes this string of profanity or something like that, or saying, well, all of a sudden there's a big hole in your armor. See, or if someone giving you pornography routinely and letting his thoughts stray or her thoughts stray to just kinds of activity that God doesn't want us to stray toward, there's a big hole in your breastplate of righteousness. You've got a big opening for the enemy to come in. It can be for other kinds of sin, whether it's greed or, or lying or whatever, that that opens us to influence from the enemy, um, giving place, uh, giving opportunity to the devil. So Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As these passages suggest, where there is a pattern of persistent sin in the life of a Christian, the primary responsibility for that sin rests with the individual Christian. That's the fourth time I've said this. Uh, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't present your members to sin, Paul says. Nevertheless, there could possibly be some demonic influence contributing or intensifying that sinful tendency. And I just gave some examples here, but you could maybe think of others. If there are long-standing patterns of things such as bad temper, contentiousness, strife, depression, rebellion against rightful authority, lack of self-control in eating or alcohol, or I could say drugs or gambling, pornography, or just laziness, bitterness, envy. Now look, I deal with laziness, okay? I deal with envy. So do you. Okay, but I'm saying where it's where it's a, a kind of a long-standing pattern and and a, and, a, and a really serious destructive problem, then there could be demonic influence. Now somebody can say, what about depression? Aren't there other causes? Yeah, I think there can be some chemical or medical causes for depression. I understand that too, and there could be some relational factors or some other factors entering in. So I'm not saying all of these 
are because of demons. But I am saying where you see patterns of behavior that seem resistant to change over a period of time and maybe resistant to prayer and to counsel and advice from friends or others, and there's not a change. And then I would think, I wonder if there's a demonic component here that hasn't been dealt with yet and needs to be dealt with. It has a, has a stronghold. When these become increasingly self-destructive, see, that's a sign. Satan's goal is to destroy us. Or where there's a pattern of lying and denying that these things are happening. Because Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Self-destructive because Satan is a murderer. He tries to destroy Lying and falsehood and not even believing the truth. The person not even believing the truth about himself. Then Satan is a liar and, and there's deception. Okay, so, so I'm saying there could be some demonic influence there. Um, just, I think I'm going to go on here. Uh, just to one more area. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Um, I don't like the term. I tried to get demon possession out of the English Standard Version translation of the Bible entirely, and we succeeded at all but the situation of the Gadarene demoniac who, you know, bound himself with chains and cut himself and everything, or bound with chains, he broke. And the committee said, oh, this is so bad, we're going to keep the word demon possession there. So maybe in our revision we'll get rid of it. Why I don't like it is it isn't accurate to the Greek. The Greek text talks about people having a demon or people being influenced by demons, but it doesn't talk about demon possession. So I think the whole term is a mistake. And so in some sense, I don't want to answer the question, but then I say, well, it depends on what you mean by demon possession. So the Greek never uses language that suggests a demon possesses someone. It talks about people having a demon, people who are asking, accusing Jesus, and, and, uh, <clears throat> or accusing John the Baptist. Jesus said, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. They say, he has a demon. Or Luke 8, 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land there, met him a man from the city who had demons. Oh, he'd worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. That's pretty bad. Okay, uh, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Well, sometimes the New Testament speaks of people who are under the demonic influence, daimonizomai, or uh, um, I got the, I misspelled that. It's D-A-I, daimonizomai. And uh, Matthew 4:24, his fame spread throughout all city. They brought all Syria. They brought to him the sick, those afflicted by diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons. That was the general term we used in the in the English Standard Version for this word, daimonizomai. Uh, being under the influence or being under, being oppressed in some measure by demons. And they brought to many who were oppressed by demons. Interesting here, epileptics are in a different category than those oppressed by demons it's a, and, and paralytics, and he healed them, So and people in various diseases. So the New Testament is distinguishing. Um, but if by demon-possessed, if people mean a person's will is so completely dominated by a demon, so the person has no power left to choose to do right and obey God, then the answer to the question, can a demon, Christian be demon-possessed, the answer is no. A Christian can't be, I think, so dominated by a demon that the person has no power left to choose to do right and obey God. Romans 6.14 says, sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. Romans 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so I think for a Christian, that's true, and we're able to choose what is right. But on the other hand, see, it's, it's avoiding a mistake on two sides again. One mistake is people say, oh, a Christian could be demon-possessed, and I say, no, that's wrong. And the other mistake is say, well, then we don't have any influence from demons in our lives at all. We're free from them completely. And I say, no, that's wrong. Because I think that most Christians would agree that there can be differing degrees of demonic attack or demonic influence in the lives of believers. My goodness, when I was getting this lesson ready a week ago, I just felt discouraged and down and depressed for two, three days. Why? I think I know why, to be honest. And I think I mentioned to you that in, when I sent 57 chapters of the electronic uh, version of systematic theology to be typeset and proofread over, or to be proofread and, and edited over in England at the publisher, uh, the one chapter that didn't come through mysteriously was this chapter. Hey, what, you're missing that. Oh, sorry, we never got it. All right. So, yeah, I think there is. And I think after a, a lot of pastors will say, after I preach sermon on Sunday morning, I just feel discouraged and I feel accusations and I feel like you know that was a horrible thing. I just think the enemy just tries to attack or influence us in different areas. Well, Jesus himself was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says there was a messenger of Satan sent to him to harass him, uh, to keep him from being too proud. And he says... I mean, this, this one is very clear. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's wrestling against them. There's a struggle. There's an attack or an influence. Um, Paul uh, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That assumes that there is some demonic attack against Christians. Uh, Peter, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be watchful. And so... I think that it's important to teach on this because if a Christian doesn't know about or make use of the weapons of spiritual warfare, the degree of demonic attack in a Christian's life could be quite strong if that is not addressed. How strong? I don't know. It's like saying, how much sin can a Christian get into and still be a Christian? I don't know. I really don't want to know. <laughs> it's not a helpful question. Let's just deal with whatever situation comes up. Okay, so now you say, then, how can demonic influences be recognized? Um, severe cases in the Gospels showed themselves by bizarre and often violent actions, especially to the preaching of the Gospel. Jesus is preaching in a synagogue. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, I suppose, with just a loud voice, disrupting everything. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, the demon was saying something a little bit truthful, but he's being very disruptive, disruptive of the preaching of the gospel. I remember back in college, um, a number of us uh, involved in the Christian fellowship at Harvard went out on the Cambridge Commons, a big park where anybody could come out and talk about whatever. And so we got a park bench, and we were taking turns standing up doing some street preaching, some evangelism on a Sunday afternoon. And so here I was on this bench, and there were about 30 or 40 people gathered around, and I was giving some kind of evangelistic message, and there was this guy pacing back and forth in a leather coat in the back, and all of a sudden, I wasn't even looking. He ran up, grabbed my arm, threw me off the bench. My Bible went flying. And, and some people grabbed him right away. And he said, and he's, and this guy's shaking his head. He said, I don't know what made me do that. I don't know what made me do that. Well, 
I know what made you do that, guy. Uh, it, was just, it's, it was bizarre and violent reaction to the preaching of the gospel. Um, so the demons showed themselves in that way, I think. And uh, we just dealt with it and went on. Um, here's a, a demon throwing this child down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid and cast him into the fire. It casts him into the fire, into the water to destroy him again. See, these, there was a severe case of demonic influence in a child's life, and these violent and bizarre actions were going on. Um, so, oh, this man had been bound with shackles and chains. He wrenched the chains apart. It was unusually strong, uh, maybe activity under demonic influence. He burst the chains. Or blatantly false doctrinal statements. Um, no one can say, no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. I think probably in the church at Corinth, uh, maybe there were Maybe there are people standing up and saying, oh, I have a prophecy and saying this blasphemy against Jesus. And Paul says, well, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's probably demonic influence. Um, and he says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 3-5. I think also we can recognize demonic influence by a subjective sense of the presence of, eve, of an evil spiritual influence. Paul says some people have more gifting in that than others. Some people have an ability to distinguish between spirits. And, um, and uh, actually, that 2 Corinthians 12 verse is different. That's how we can sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in people, too. Um, well, I'm gonna, I didn't ask, but I just mentioned it. A long time ago, um, can I tell about that? You were... You were traveling with a real estate agent and uh, around our neighborhood, and um, you didn't want to go into a house. And the, I won't tell any who it was, but but there was somebody else coming to buy a house in our, you know, where we were living in Illinois. And Margaret and the friend were traveling around. I don't know if you remember this, Margaret, traveling around with a real estate agent, and they were looking at different houses. And and they came up to this house, and from the curb, Margaret said, "I don't think we should go in this house. I feel uneasy about it, or something." She just felt uneasy. And, of course, the real estate agent and the person said, oh, come on, it's on the list, let's go. Let's look. So they went in the house. It was just filled with pornography. See, I, I think Margaret, just as a believer, was sensing the evil, the evil presence of, of demonic stuff. And I, I remember many years ago walking down uh, one of these streets in New York City that was just filled with all kinds of sexual evil and immorality and just feeling an oppression. Kind of. So I think sometimes we just, by subjective sense, we sense not the presence of the Holy Spirit, but just evil. Um, and there, but still, we're not sure about that. There'll be some degree of uncertainty in our present perception of the presence of demonic influence. So now, I'm going to stop there. I've got two or three minutes just for interaction. And where am I on the outline? I'm at what? 4D. So... Um, so now, next week, I want to talk about how do we deal with this and, uh, and how can we minister in regard to other people as well. But let's just take two or three minutes if you want to interact on that at all. Yeah, uh, forgot your name. Dottie. Dottie. I just thought of the flak jacket that he talked about, and uh, that was the, the armor. Breastplate. The yeah. breastplate of armor, and it was just, I mean, it was just Oh, like, that was Bob, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was just, it was yeah good. Flak jacket, good. Okay.
Anything else on this, Laverne? What was going on with Jesus after the uh, crucifixion, before the resurrection, when in First Peter? Okay. Was that well, he went and preached the spirits in prison who formerly yeah. disobeyed First Peter three eighteen to twenty. I think when Jesus died, I think Jesus is the forerunner for us, and what happened to him is a pattern for us. So when Jesus died, his body was laid in the ground or in the tomb, but his spirit, his human spirit or his soul, went into the presence of God in heaven because he said. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So I don't think Jesus went to hell. I don't think he preached to any evil spirits in hell or anything. People argue that, and I've tried to answer that in writing in a commentary I have in 1 Peter, but I think he just his spirit went into, into heaven. And then on Easter Sunday morning, just like ours will at the resurrection, his spirit came back and was joined to his body in the tomb and he was raised. Okay, John? You had it up there earlier in First John. Uh, when and where is it appropriate for us to ask somebody who apparently seems to have all the answers, uh, who do you say Jesus Christ is? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, um, I don't know. As the Lord leads you to give an opportunity to, to, uh, to say that. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to walk a biblically balanced line here and say this stuff is real but we should not fear it excessively but we shouldn't just dismiss it and try to say yes patterns of obedience to God help us have some protection against this but I think there there is a place for speaking against a, an evil spirit and telling it you know in the name of Jesus be gone um, and not to make it a big emotional encounter or a long drawn out or anything, but it's, it's the authority of Christ and his word and the authority of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil. We thank you that you disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And we thank you that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, uh, that your word says that to us. And we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit within. Lord, for each member of this class, each man and woman, we, I ask that you'd give a special measure of protection from the attacks of the enemy this week and an ability to recognize when those attacks come and to be able to resist and stand firm in our faith. I pray especially for Jesse here as he is a Marine uh, serving in Iraq that you would protect him and the other uh, uh, forces that are there seeking to do right and bring good to that region. What a hard job, Lord. Protect them from the enemy, uh, both spiritually and uh, physically from the enemy, and uh, let them bring uh, peace to that region through their effort. Advance your kingdom, Lord, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our jobs. Amen. See you next week.